Hi, I'm Peter Ciampelli. And I'm Bridget Bright. And you're listening to Good News, a special edition of Ithaca Now from WICB. It seems like now more than ever, our country needs good news. We need good news about progress in our society. But we also need the practice of good news from our country's newspapers, websites, and TV stations. Today, we'll look at two stories. First, we're going to look at a complex issue that's been going on in our country for decades. But we'll look at it through the lens of how the news media is covering it. We'll also hear an interview with Jeff Cohen, the founder of FAIR.org, and former anchor on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. We'll also look at a story about activism in Ithaca, glancing back in history at an early activist organization, and looking now at how people go about making change and building a better future. Thanks for listening to Good News. To put it lightly, there's a lot going on in the news right now. I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I feel like I'm getting news fatigue. I just feel tired of seeing breaking news. Part of the problem with the way the news covers issues like COVID-19 and the way the news covers all issues is that one thing will take over the whole news cycle, not leaving room for anything else. There's a lot that's not being talked about right now, and one of these issues is immigration. The U.S.-Mexico border is sometimes a huge focus in mainstream news, like during the family separation crisis and when President Trump first came out with his build that wall sentiment. But truthfully, it's an ongoing issue. I wanted to learn more for myself about border policy and the situation at the border. But as I read books and listened to podcasts, I realized that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. This made me think, what are the parts of the story I'm missing? And more importantly, why are they missing? Today, we'll look at the U.S.-Mexico border, not just through the lens of the facts, but through the lens of how the media has reported on it in the past, and what they've got wrong. Are you a citizen? Part 1. The current status. Before we take a look at the media, first, a quick summary of what's happening at the border and how we got here. Yeah, my name is uh, Patricia Rodriguez. I am a chair person for the politics department. I'm also part of the steering committee of the Tompkins County Immigrant Rights Coalition. I wanted to talk to Patricia to learn more about the political situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I think it's important. It's really, really important to understand that there's a history of this. It's policies that go back to colonial decisions. The complex situation at the border can't be defined by just the family separation crisis or by Trump building a wall. The current situation has come from decades of U.S. economic policy and by extractivism and that being at the root of migration. And this led us to the current situation. The border was on everyone's mind in the summer of 2018 when the family separation crisis took over the news cycle and an image of a daughter being separated from her family circulated the internet. That, that picture it was, it was totally tragic. Unfortunately, like what is happening is totally as a result of this policy for years now. Like people are dying like that all the time. That was journalist Todd Miller, who wrote Empire of Borders, which details the militarization of the United States border. Now, the current situation at the border is resulting in migrants fleeing violence in their communities. And they're going through 
tons of difficult, risky, deadly situations to get here. And facing more harmful situations when they get to the U.S. There's a, a report uh, that by the ACLU that came out in 2015 recording over 30,000 cases in short-term border patrol detention of misuse, mistreatment of children. There's so much that we could get into. The process of migrants actually securing citizenship is a long, tedious process that could take years. And when someone is fleeing violence or threats in their community and wants to seek asylum through the U.S.'s legal process. The likelihood of winning is right around 1%. Um, so a lot of people are desperate, waiting in shelters for years, and then the outcome is extremely stacked against them. That's Katie Sherrard. I am the director of communications at KBI since early 2018. She's been working on the border since 2003. Well, and a lot of people I talked to were just like, you know, like, it's a certain death if I go home. Like, my daughter will be killed. I will be recruited into the gangs. Like, they have, you know, my death, like, the warrant is out for my death. Um, and so even if the odds are really, really slim, I'm going to go with the very, very slim odds rather than the certainty of getting killed if I return. Part two, the news. So we're caught up on the current status. The real focus of this story, though, is how the news treats this issue. FAIR.org, or Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, reports on the news. The news is supposed to be the free press, the fourth estate, a watchdog on Congress, corporations, and the Supreme Court. When the news doesn't fulfill that duty, FAIR.org is a watchdog on the news. In a bunch of articles, FAIR points out that the news has some issues with how it covers the border. It points out that the news outlets dehumanize migrants, and the news misses the point that climate change is one of the leading factors driving migration. Journalist Todd Miller also sees some issues with how the mainstream media covers the border. A lot of times with the, with the, main, with the mass media, it, it doesn't follow the, what the story is, it follows the perception. Katie Sherrard from the Kino Border Initiative brought up the same point. There have been moments when everyone has wanted to come to the border, like the family separation. But families have been separated because of the border for years, actually beginning in large part with Obama. Um, and the journalists uh, and other media outlets never were particularly uh, interested in covering that angle. Like I also talked be, to Jeff Cohen, yeah, who founded FAIR, and later founded the Park Center for Independent Media. The mainstream media leave out so many issues when it comes to border policy. One of the main issues, we're getting so much immigration from Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras. And those three countries have all had their regimes and their societies trampled by U.S. foreign policy. Part of the reason those societies have so many problems is because the U.S. has installed right-wing governments, has funded death squads, has brought uh, guns into those nations. The current director of the Park Center for Independent Media, I'm uh, Reza Rumi. He has some similar concerns. These policies have been there by successive U.S. administrations. They're in part a response to income inequality. And so the best uh, option there is to paint the outsider or the, or the migrant or the immigrant as the enemy. You can't dehumanize human beings by re reducing them to undocumented. Undocumented, uh, you know, strips them of their humanity. Part 3. Systemic Roots 
As you can tell by this story, I'm a reporter, but I'm also a citizen of the United States, and I noticed that I didn't have a real knowledge on this situation from our mainstream news. I didn't know why it was so hard for people to come from Mexico and get citizenship, and I didn't know why the border was talked about nonstop during some months, but then immediately forgotten about. So if we're going to take a look at the root of what the problem is, we need to be focused on the role of the U.S. I talked with Patricia to learn more. As a professor and chair of the Ithaca College Politics Department, she focuses on social change and the current hardships facing communities in Colombia. So it's, a, it's really dire situations that at the bottom of it is U.S. policy to the region, both in terms of political issues and militarization. And it's helping a few of the wealthy and it's putting a lot of poor people, majority of the poor people at risk. Journalist Todd Miller says that this is what mainstream news media, mainly I'm thinking about cable news, is missing. It's almost like you lit, like you're in a forest, you see a tree, and you describe every pot thing on the tree from the amount of brand, amount of leaves on a branch, but I'll, but the rest of the forest you miss, right? The bigger picture, the history of it, how it became this way, who are the who are the different actors, where's it going in the future, the big forest of it. Is, is missed. Part 4. The Most Important Voices According to Todd and Patricia, these elements are what's key in understanding the U.S.-Mexico border. The systemic causes of the issues, which all has to do with the United States' economic policy on the region. Katie Sherrar from the Kino Border Initiative mentioned another piece missing from the story. I think there's not necessarily a total understanding of just how difficult conditions are in communities of origin. Katie already mentioned the legal hardships of people seeking asylum coming from Mexico. But she says some misconceptions about people that cross the border illegally also come from the news not sharing migrant stories. Well, if you think about places like Mexico, where there's so many people who, for reasons of family reunification or for safety or economic stability, are seeking to, to migrate, last I heard, the wait time was about 25 years. Some people can wait 25 years to reunite with family members, but a lot of people can't. Like, 25 years is a really long time. FAIR.org founder Jeff Cohen shares a similar concern about the media. I mean, what you want from mainstream media, you get it from democracy now, you get it from the independent media. Let's hear from the immigrants. You know, why did they come here in the first place? How are they contributing to society now? But you don't see the humanness. Jeff says this is a key piece that the news doesn't include. The news doesn't share the stories firsthand from people who are migrating. The impact it leaves is that readers of the news don't understand why people come to seek asylum in the U.S. Again, journalist Todd Miller. There's this like, oh, wow, this happened, but there's not like, wow, why is this happening? Why is that person in this river? Why would they feel like they have to cross? What we need to be hearing is why they're fleeing. Ithaca College's Patricia Rodriguez. Going deep into issues, not just of violence from the gangs, but going deep into issues of where those gangs get their guns. We need to pay more attention to those that are, that are suffering, right? Like, what are they saying? Why are they at risk? and deciding that, that they need to take a risk. What is this, this state throwing at them that is connected to U.S. policymaking? Part 5. Where do we go from here? With all these issues in the mainstream media, there are media sources doing justice by these people's stories. 
independent podcasts, and independent news sources like The Intercept, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, and Mother Jones, to name a few, are doing journalism that gets to the heart of what's really fueling tension on the border, the systemic, economic roots of the issue, and the personal stories for migrants. Katie Sherrar. You know, talking to people mostly about only about like a particular aspect of their experience without asking as well, like just questions that would help kind of flesh out the whole understanding about where they're from, why they're why they're leaving. Jeff Cohen. And this is, these are terms that mainstream media uses to describe humans. The flood of immigrants, the deluge, you know, those are more or less somewhat natural disasters. They aren't human beings, but it's a way that mainstream media demonizes people. We never hear about the U.S. role in mucking up those societies. Patricia Rodriguez. In general, I think that uh, journalists are not helping. We don't hear about the people that are walking through the jungle in Colombia that is filled with armed actors. We need to understand more of that. And that's like really not being uh, touched on. This story really is meant as an overview of the issue and a look at the US-Mexico border through one lens, what the news has done right and what it's done wrong, to really understand the history of the border and to understand the struggles the people migrating to the US are facing, www.wicbgood.news has some recommendations of books and podcasts that do a good job explaining. For WICB News and for Good News, I'm Peter Champelli. You're listening to Good News, a special edition of WICB's Ithaca Now. We'll turn to an interview with renowned media critic Jeff Cohen. Cohen founded the media watchdog group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting and the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College. I sat down with him to learn more about the difference between independent media and mainstream media and to learn about his career. I'm Jeff Cohen. I was the former uh, founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media. I founded the Media Watch Group Fair. I've worked in mainstream media and independent media, and so I know the difference. I guess my first question about that is, can you just explain in simple terms what the issue of news media consolidation and um, corporatization is? and why that issue should be of a real concern to like the average news reader. Right. Yeah, the average news consumer has to be bothered, should be concerned about what's happened in the last 30 years as uh, mainstream media have been taken over by fewer and fewer companies. I'm old enough to remember when there was uh, NBC News, CBS News, ABC News, and the news departments were not expected to make a profit you know, the, these companies would say, well, we're making a profit from entertainment shows, but news, you go out there and cover the issues and we will try not to intervene too much. That's all changed. Uh, news is a profit center. Uh, it's, so it's been turned into entertainment. It's sensationalized. It's aimed because it's a profit center. News, especially on television, but also broadly into print. Um, it's supposed to bring eyeballs to advertisers. 
and you want to bring eyeballs to advertisers that are not too disturbed by the events that they see. Uh, so the commercialization of news has gone hand in hand with the corporatization of news. And so you get just too much sensationalism, happy talk, uh, never focused on what the real problems are because it's often corporations that cause the problem and they're your owner and sponsor. So uh, it's not hard for me to speak to audiences that are not heavily activist oriented or heavily political and convince them in five minutes that they should be very skeptical of the news they get through the corporate owned media. Thank you. Um, can you give one example of like an issue that uh, might be covered differently by a mainstream news media outlet and how that could like really impact the situation politically or, or someone's, um, you know, everyday life in that way? Yeah. Every issue is reported different from corporate media versus more independent, non-corporate media. Um, you could take health care in uh in mainstream media include both liberal and conservative mainstream media liberal including npr new york times washington post cnn msnbc when they cover health care reform they're just totally petrified uh, and try to scare the the news consumers about medicare for all and you're going to lose 150 150 million people that get their private insurance largely through their employer and you don't want to lose that and go to a Medicare for all. Um, it's a, it's been a complete uh, biased coverage throughout the 26, the 2020 election. Uh, the reality is, as we saw from the uh, pandemic we're going through, when you have your health insurance connected to your job, you're in trouble because you might lose your job. It's part of the reason so many people stay at their job is if they have a job with health insurance, they can't go anywhere. They're sort of slaves to the job. People hate their private insurance. Why is it so badly covered in mainstream media? Because the health insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals are two of the biggest industries that sponsor the news. So you don't hear what's wrong with the healthcare system so much as you hear what's wrong with reform ideas like Medicare for all. It's typical. Um, you could go from issue to issue to issue where because the independent experts or progressive critics of an issue are critical of the greedy corporations that cause the social problem, but the mainstream media, even the liberal ones, are owned by those greedy corporations or sponsored by them. So you could just name any issue under the sun and I could explain to you how it's miscovered because of the corporate connection. Uh, climate, climate change, climate chaos, for decades, they, we knew this problem was getting worse. And in the mainstream media, they would have someone reflecting the scientific consensus. This is a horrible danger. And then they bring on some, someone funded by the fossil fuel industry to uh, gum up the works and lie. And it wasn't until a few years ago that we got that stopped. But still, on issue after issue, uh, from immigration to whatever, they won't talk about the impact of climate change on these, all of these other issues we discuss. Poverty, um, agriculture, uh, it's just, 
you know, climate change because the fossil fuel industry are among the biggest sponsors of the news. And I include big sponsors of NPR, which is supposed to be public radio, but isn't. So uh, that's the problem. And again, when I talk to non-political, non-heavy news consumers about these threats, they immediately get it why, you know, it's conflicted. I mean, think about communist China. Um, everyone in our country understands that you can't trust the media of communist China because the media are either controlled by the communist state or the communist party. And so any, any analysis of the governing forces in Chinese society, the party and the state are uh, uh, subverted because the media are owned by those forces. Well, in our country, the dominant forces in society are big corporations. And so an active independent journalism would scrutinize those powerful industries. They can't, they can do it sometimes, especially when one of the companies has been indicted for something. But short of that, they can't do the intensive scrutiny of the most powerful forces in our society. And those forces are corporate uh, organizations and they happen to own and sponsor the news. Our next story is about activists in Ithaca from reporters Hamadri Saith and Antonio Fermi. We'll look back at the MOVE organization, founded in 1968, which paved the way for social change in our city. I'm Hamadri Saith. And I'm Antonio Fermi. Thanks for tuning in to Good News, a special edition of WICB's Ithaca Now. In a time of, well, a lot of not-so-good news, we became interested in learning about some silver linings happening within the Ithaca community. I was called out on the first Earth Day. I went around my hometown chalking Earth Day messages on sidewalks and somebody said, why are you messing up the sidewalks? So, you know, if, if you want to be an activist, you're not always greeted fondly. That was Gene Eldris, who has been an active member of the Ithaca community for his whole life. The story he shared about social activism from 50 years ago shows how Ithaca has always been an area that has advocated for radical social change. The city has seen social movement uprisings sparked by human rights violations, environmental injustices, and corporate structures. In particular, Ithaca has a unique and meaningful role in LGBTQ history. It was one of the first cities in the U.S. to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. Fortunately, there are institutions such as the Tompkins County Center for History and Culture that provide resources to community members pertaining to their local history. And I think we may have found a really interesting one. The MOVE organization was founded in Ithaca just after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968. MOVE described themselves as a community action group created by local townspeople, including students, for the purpose of working against poverty and discrimination, which still entraps a significant segment of our fellow citizens. Wow, that was intense. MOVE functioned through action groups in areas such as jobs, housing, education, and public service. Membership was open to all residents in the community who wished to work towards these goals. The organization's primary focus was on three major areas, housing, employment, and education. Several initiatives were undertaken by the group, including efforts to facilitate access to housing for poor and black residents. The MOVE Employment Committee set out to solve the largest problems facing low- and middle-income groups in Tompkins County. 
They discussed the issues that came from the lack of daycare programs, which meant that women with children could work only after making expensive arrangements for the care of their children. A mother deciding to work would barely make any money given the associated costs with getting a job. This is why the employment committee wanted to get wives of low-income earners into the labor force, therefore doubling the family income. They also discussed reasons why carpools are an important substitute to the bus system. The Education Committee of MOVE was working with the school system in curriculum planning for Afro-American history, black culture, and fully representing all cultures within Ithaca. One project was to locate the most up-to-date and accurate textbooks for Ithaca classrooms to use, specifically covering black history and culture. The April 17, 1970 issue of the MOVE newsletter referred to a quote, substantial dropping off of the activity of the organization. Edward Fleisig, the chairman of the employment committee at the time, explained why he resigned from the MOVE organization. I'm resigning as chairman of this committee because I feel totally frustrated. I'm also disgusted. Look at it my way. Here I am sitting on a package of solutions which I believe would significantly improve the welfare of all the people in this county and if generally applied of all the people in the country and I can't get any appreciable body of people to work on any of them for any appreciable period of time. My only alternative in this respect is to devote this time I spent on current move business to getting other organizations in on some of the solutions. This message marked the beginning of the end for the move organization, a glimpse of activism led by forward-thinking leaders who had the right ideas in mind, but were ultimately not able to get the funding and support to make them into reality. Locally, there's a lot of politics even going on at this level. I've been to some meetings that say, well, these people think they're doing the right thing, but in my view, it's not the right thing. <laughs> and how do you tell them that it isn't? How, how do you get your views of what reality is into the people who can make things happen? But as MOVE dissolved, the idea of social activism and the vision that they started out with remained strong only to be represented by other organizations that came after. But how did these other organizations continue to thrive when MOVE saw such an early end? We talked to representatives from three organizations presently working in the Ithaca community, with different historical origins focused on the three issues that MOVE was most concerned about, education, housing, and employment. I spend a lot of time working with the district at a school leadership and administrative level to make sure my funds donated by our generous donors get to the teachers and impact classrooms as smoothly as possible. That was Stephen Manley, the executive director of Ithaca Public Education Initiative, or IPEI, a hyper-local nonprofit foundation started in 1996 with the goal of raising funds to support teachers, educators, and school leaders in the Ithaca community. We also spoke to Johanna Anderson, the executive director of Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services. The nonprofit housing provider was founded in 1976 and works throughout seven counties within the central New York area. Their mission is to encourage stability and diversity while assisting low to moderate income earners and obtaining quality housing on a long-term basis. So we have basically four lines of business. Construction services, which does a lot of health and safety repairs for low-income homeowners. We've also got a lending department that does down payment and closing costs for first-time home buyers. A property management arm that they manage about 530 different units. And then we also have a real estate development department that builds new construction. It does rehab. They 
build multifamily, single family, uh, for sale rentals. And finally, Pete Myers is the coordinator slash executive director of the Tompkins County Workers Center. He was also one of the co-founders of the organization in 2003. We actually started as a Tompkins County Living Wage Coalition. You know, living wage is what a person, a single person needs to be self-sufficient. It doesn't actually get into family sizes because like obviously people with larger families need to have more money. So that's been integral to what we do. But actually less than six months into the birth of our organization in 2003, we started a workers' rights hotline um, because while a lot of people, especially working class poor people, agree that they should be paid a living wage, you know, especially back in the early 2000s, it didn't seem like, you know, that's not going to be an easy thing to get. Um, so we started a workers' rights hotline as a way to get workers more involved with the organization. And that's been very vital to what we do. And we encourage workers to organize unions through that and take action in concert with each other in workplaces to change things. Unfortunately, not all social activism is effective. Even in what Fleisig said, he indicated that it is difficult for those involved in nonprofits like MOVE to follow through on the positive changes they want to make in a way that truly benefits people. While this endeavor may be difficult, nonprofit organizations are a great way for innovators and social activists to have a positive impact on their community. Our local experts emphasize the importance of understanding the needs of a community and work in that direction. Stephen Manley from IPEA said, so when I say that a nonprofit should make sure their community is ready and able to accept what they're offering, I, I, what I mean is it, it, it would be fantastic to offer a program or a product to a school if it's all online and it's an amazing educational opportunity, but your students don't have access to that particular online venue. So you've spent a lot of time and energy and thought and probably positive intention. But if you're not aware of the, uh, the ability of the group you're trying to give to, to receive what you're giving, it, it can cause a lot of frustration. We recognize that Ithaca is incredibly blessed with a variety of talents and a variety of resources that not everyone in every place has access to. Johanna reiterated that it's not just the key for social activism, but for um, really any endeavor is you, you have to listen to and keep an open mind and an open heart. And that unfortunately for most of the problems that are out there, it's not a simple solution. Social activism is a continuous effort, but Anderson said, it's not one solution. It's a multitude of solutions that are just slowly chipping away at whatever the issue is. And so, you know, you're, you're in it for the long haul. And I think by sometimes decisions or social activism, I think it's just, it's, it's done more of a sprint and less of the marathon. And according to Myers, it's about letting the people tell you what they want, instead of you telling them what they need. What's effective for organizers, somebody in, in our midst said, how do you know that that's what workers want, a living wage? How do you know that they don't want to have toilet paper freshly stocked in their bathrooms at work? which I thought was an interesting point. I mean, you know, there's so, sometimes can be presumptions within social justice organizing groups or organizations that we know what people want. Uh, you know, people want to have more money. It's challenge. Elaborating on the challenging parts of social activism, Manley says, One of the challenges that we can often face is would, would be possibly a duplication of, of efforts. 
And so as nonprofits begin to develop and begin to evolve, it's really important that they create ways to stay in relationship with one another and to stay aware of what each other is doing. And uh, here in Tompkins County, there are a number of groups where executives and finance officers of different nonprofits meet regularly. And that has been really valuable. The challenges only seem to begin at the level of organizations though, and go all the way to the people who are being affected by change. Anderson says, Characteristically, humans just don't like change. So when it comes to affordable housing, I think a lot of NIMBY stuff has to do with this perceived feeling about, well, this is the way it's always looked. That's always been an empty lot. They're taking a very small slice of time and saying that it's been that way forever. With INHS, one of the things that we really like to do early on is a very involved community engagement process. We're not a cookie cutter developer. The solution that we used last year is not going to work in this location. And sometimes, interestingly, what we may perceive as challenges can also have their silver linings. Employers tend to be afraid of us, which is kind of a strange thing, but not a bad thing from our point of view. You know, it's, uh, you know they don't want to get bad publicity from us. But, you know, like some of the changes are very ambitious changes, like to get a living wage for everybody in Tompkins County is not an easy change to make happen. Someone famous who I don't really remember the name of once said, focus on the solution, not on the problem. We've grown in our scope of leadership to really work hard to represent at our leader and volunteer level uh, the majority of the school and the communities the schools represent. And that's been an, an active goal of ours to involve the community at large in our conversation as we circle that back and say, how can we support the community at large? We want to have as many voices in the room as possible. And I think that's one of the things we've done well is uh, been able to balance being a leader and being a supporter across our history. INHS was really one of the first organizations in the U.S., especially in a smaller city, to adopt this model of community development where it said that we're going to have three voices involved. We're going to have local residents be involved, local government, and local business to determine what the issues are, what resources we have, and then come up with unique solutions. And that's still how INHS is run today. You know, it INHS over the years, I think, has been so strong because it has really had had wonderful partnerships. When you have really strong partnerships with local government to help you understand how the programs should be run, what the issues are. When you have residents that are telling you on the ground, this is what the issue is. Really, those make just such a world of difference. I think you end up having a much stronger solution. Myers also highlighted the importance of working with legislators and local leaders when working on his Living Wage campaign. So like four or five years ago, a movement started nationally, fight for $15 an hour. Never actually bought into the fight for 15 specifically because the minimum wage would be higher here than it is in many places in the country. Uh, but, you know, so the county legislature would have to pass that legislation to this effect, and then it would have to be approved by the state government, which would make it more of a challenge, especially right now because of uh, you know, one of the problems with the living wage movement is uh, people who are caregivers, you know, make poverty wages and they get the funding from government, federal and state sources that want to give as little money as possible to provide for these services. I think we're very good at 
educating people on, on this. And we, you know, we've convened like a powerful working group of people, county legislatures and business leaders to address this for the last two years. But it's not, and right now it's more of a challenge than ever because people are not gonna be concerned about living wage in the same way. While circumstances may be vastly different than they were during the civil rights era, the essence of social activism remains the same. Ithaca is a town with incredibly generous citizens that frequently engage in social activism. I truly believe it is a great starting point for any organization, group of people, or even an individual that dreams of making a positive change in their community. The organizations we talk to are still continuing to function during COVID-19 through YouTube presentations, massive Zoom calls, and various other work-from-home strategies because social activism is ongoing and it is resilient. And while every organization with a great vision may not survive, the commitment to service seems to live on, represented by the many organizations like MOVE that have done their bit throughout history and into the present. Helping others, and that other can be anything. It can be the environment, it can be animals, whatever that other may be. But helping somebody other than yourself, um, it is so rewarding. And it is, it's the best feeling in the world when I can't wait to get to work every day, even if it's down in the basement. For WICB News, I'm Antonio Fermi. And I'm Himadri Said. That's all for Good News, a special edition of Ithaca Now. All of the music on today's program was produced by Ithaca band Quail. You can find more of their music on Spotify and Apple Music. Good News is also a digital experience, which you can find at www.wicbgood.news. This special edition of Ithaca Now was produced by reporters Hamadri Saith and Antonio Fermi. By me, WICB station manager Peter Champelli. And by me, news director Bridget Bright. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Nate Richter, experience director for Good News. And finally, a huge thank you to manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, and to Ithaca College's Park School for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Good News.